0: Hi, and welcome to Profoundly. I'm your host, Pips Taylor, and this podcast harnesses the wisdom of a -a one-of-a-kind global community. Profoundly is for women who want to grow, learn, connect, and thrive. Each week, I'll be chatting to industry leaders and experts in our network. We'll be giving you a taster of what Femme Foundry is all about, and I'll be joined by guests to discuss burning issues for us today and sharing their life experience and inspiring us to just be. Fem Foundry is a one-stop digital space for anyone who identifies as a woman to connect, learn, unite and belong freely on their own terms. With this podcast, we'll be bringing our leaders to you, sharing industry expertise, personal stories and advice to help you navigate every element of your life, from the professional to the very personal. No jargon, no filters, just open, honest conversation. This is Real Talk about the issues that affect real women, along with expert guidance, informed analysis and honest discussion. You are very welcome here. If you want to just listen, we hope that you'll find something to inspire, educate, challenge or spark your curiosity. And if you want to join the debate, connect with our guests or find out more by adding your voice to our global community at Femme Foundry, our doors are always open. We're here to start the conversation, but we're hoping you'll be the ones to finish it. Welcome to the club. Now, if you're in need of some inspiration, then look no further. Today's guest is a serial entrepreneur, award-winning businesswoman, writer, speaker, and pioneer of the organic food movement. Jo Fairley started her career in publishing and was the UK's youngest ever magazine editor at the age of just 23. After a successful career as a writer and journalist, she went on to co-found organic fair trade chocolate company Green & Blacks, now approaching a £100 million year. Brand. Since then, she has founded a number of other businesses, from well-being to perfume and remains one of the UK's leading inspirational speakers on entrepreneurship, sustainable business, and female leadership. I cannot think of anyone better placed to share their wisdom and advice on navigating life and business in an ever-changing world. Jo, welcome. Now, you achieved success at a very young age, becoming the UK's youngest ever magazine editor at the age of 23. How did it feel to get so far so quickly at such a young age for you? Completely terrifying.
1: <laughs> I was a feature writer on a magazine called Woman's World, which had been an amazing baptism by fire in journalism. And I literally did everything from, I mean, I was interviewing movie stars like Betty Davis and Charlton Heston. And uh, know I was good at it I even though I left school when I was 16 I'd found what I was good at but one afternoon my boss called me into his office and he said Joe I need your help with something and I said what Terry um and he said I need a new editor for Look Now and I, I never gave it another thought I thought I said well what sort of person are you looking for and he reeled off this list of attributes and as a joke at the end I said well what you really need is somebody just like me and he said yes funny you should say that because I'd like you to start in the morning and so I was literally catapulted into the editor's chair and I didn't have a clue how to be a magazine editor I mean I was a I was a writer and I'd kind of yes I'd watch my editor at work but I didn't know actually how to do it so first thing that happened was I lost my voice for a week and every instruction that I gave to anybody was was on a sheet of paper that I'd written on and I spent the first month absolutely convinced I had total imposter syndrome I was absolutely convinced I was about to be found out and um I basically relied on a book of publishing terms that my dad gave me which had all of the jargon and so, if my art director came in and said, "Would you like this picture bled off?" which basically I now know means taking the image to the edge of the page, I would just, I'd just kind of nod and go, "Yeah, that's that's, I think so, Penny. And then if, if I'd, then I'd look up what bleeding off meant in my little book of publishing terms. And if I actually would rather have a board around it, I'd ring up and say, "You know what, Penny? I think I've just changed my mind about that." You know. And so I winged it for a month, expecting to be fired. And then the most miraculous thing happened at the end of the month because I realised that that bit of editing a magazine was mechanical and that I knew how to do that bit. And that freed me up to, because it just repeats itself month after month and I'd done it. So I was free to be creative after that point. But looking back, when I look at a 23-year-old now, And I just go, wow, I was really young doing that.
0: I feel as women, we don't put ourselves forward often enough, you know, we're kind of, we're sort of thinking, oh, can I actually really do this? But I think one of the best ways is to just be thrown straight in at the deep end. Thrown in at the deep end, nothing beats it, absolutely. Obviously, you co-founded Green and Blacks back in 1991. And I actually did listen to uh, an interview recently, and I know that you ordered two tonnes of chocolate, (laughs) and you spent your savings on two tonnes of chocolate, which was a really, really big risk to start Green and Blacks what was it that made you take that gamble? It was the best chocolate I'd
1: ever tasted so it came about because my husband to be actually we were not married at that point um, is a man called Craig Sams and he'd been in the natural food industry for years he was a real organic pioneer and in the way that that world worked it was a tiny world and people would come to you with a, a, an ingredient or a product and if you didn't have a market for it you'd put someone in touch with. of, of, you know, our friend Lisbeth in Denmark or um, Lennart in Sweden or whoever. So Craig just managed to end up with a sample of the world's first organic chocolate on his desk. And and when I ate it, I was like, oh my God, this really is the best chocolate I've ever tasted. It was the darkest chocolate I'd ever tasted because it had 70% cocoa and the highest percentage on the market at the time was 49%. And my journalistic note, Knew that being the first with anything is, from a business point of view, great. You know, I'm not interested in doing me two things, but you've got such PR mileage in being the first at doing something. So that, so basically, that was was what drove me. And and you know, I would nagged and nagged Craig to do it under his Whole Earth brand, but Whole Earth was founded on the principles of no added sugar, so he couldn't launch a product with even 30 percent of sugar in and so after a while he just turned around and said look if you're so interested why don't you do it and there was a bit of a precedent in that my two stepchildren had launched a soft drink that he'd invented as well so we were already the family was at it already really and so yeah it just it I mean it was a massive risk with hindsight but it didn't feel like a risk at the
0: time cuz I totally believed in my product and that is where it all starts. I know that you also you carried on being a journalist at the same time as launching uh, Green and Blacks uh, which is actually really phenomenal you know and I know that you know nowadays many people do do sort of a couple of jobs but I think to be doing such serious roles at the same time. I can't actually really imagine how you managed to make that work. Can you give us a little insight into how how it happened and how it worked for you?
1: I had to go on working as a journalist because we grew incredibly fast as a business and all of our money was just tied up in trying to grow, you know, grow the business, buy more stock. You know, it was just growing and growing and growing, so every penny went back into the business. And that meant that I couldn't pay myself. So I had this option of continuing to work as a journalist. And actually, it's always been really useful. I mean, I've worked as a journalist through all of my business ventures because what that gives you is a kind of finger in the air. It's, it, it's like a finger in the wind as the way the world is changing, what's coming, what's bubbling under. And that has always actually helped inform what I've done through my businesses. For many, many years, I worked, you know, every Sunday I worked, you know, it wasn't unusual to do 16, 18 hour days, et cetera, But um, it was exciting. And it, and actually, my experience is that a lot of founders, a lot of startups, that is what it takes. It's incredibly hard work. And all these sort of successes that look like overnight successes have probably nearly killed somebody along the way.
0: You found a green and black with your husband. What was it like starting a business with your husband? So it was great from one point of view, because...
1: He and I have uh, complementary but not overlapping skills. So he is great at strategy, finance, kind of vision, logistics, operations, all the outward facing stuff. Actually, I'm quite good at logistics too now. But, uh, and I love logistics, I could happily work in logistics. But I was PR, marketing, product development sampling customer service all the out-facing stuff he was all the backroom stuff so that was great and what it meant was because we knew each other so well in any given situation we knew what the other person would do we could we could take the right decision if they weren't there to consult but of course you know potentially it could take a massive toll on your relationship so I realized very early on that I was going to have to set some pretty strict boundaries And after we'd had a month of not discussing anything except green and blacks, (laughs) I I said, okay, we have to set a limit on this. So, what we would do is um, go for a walk after work through the streets of Notting Hill, where we lived, uphill, down dale, and we would just He had this little gadget in his pocket called a Voice It long before we could record things on our phones, where if one of us had a bright idea, he would capture it on that. Because I think Buckminster Fuller said that you have 42 seconds to capture an idea before it disappears. I think that's sometimes quite generous, actually. Then when we got home, I mean, for a start, my stepson was living with us. So, you know, we had to have a family supper. But then we weren't allowed to talk about it again until the next working day.
0: That sounds like a really healthy boundary that cl- clearly worked because you've celebrated your 30th wedding anniversary this week. Congratulations.
1: <laughs> I mean, it, it is a slight pinch of me. Bloody hell, 30 years. years—that's That's a proper chunk of time. But I think it does say everything that, you know, I still adore him and he still adores me. And and I guess we, you know, we did manage to keep those boundaries. And in fact, when we went on holiday, I was like a small child. If you tried to talk about business, I just put my fingers in my ears and just go, I'm not just, I'm not talking about it. I'm not talking about it. <laughs> and I, I've got a friend who uh, also is in business with her husband. And actually what they do, they do on holiday kind of earmark half a day to, to talk business uh, while they're away because they you know, they can't just leave the whole thing behind. it. it For them, it wouldn't work. But I I think it's really important to set those boundaries.
0: If anyone is listening and thinking of going into business with their partner or already on that journey, what would your best kind of advice be? My
1: advice would be that you have complementary skills. It doesn't work if both of you are creative or both of you are the kind of nuts, nuts and bolts and it's really it's a really hard thing if there's just one of you because you've got to be both of those things. So I think that most of the really strong businesses I know are a combination of two people's
0: complementary skills. And I know that you've, you've said that in the past you've had mentors and uh, Anita Roddick was a friend and mentor early in your career. What did you learn from her? I learned a lot about mentoring, actually,
1: which is that um, you need a mentor who won't just take you out for a cup of tea and pat you on the head and tell you it's going to be okay but actually where it's really useful is if they can open their little black book to you so what she did for me was introduce me to a network called social venture network in the states which was Because there we were, we were in 1990, you know, trying to change the world through business. And there weren't many people trying to do that. And so Social Venture Network was set up for people who wanted to do good through doing business. And it was amazing. We'd go off and we'd meet in, you know, in Boston or Zurich or Italy or wherever. And it was people like Anita and Gordon and Ben and Jerry (laughs) before they sold to Unilever. And so it was real kind of social enterprise pioneers. And what was so valuable about that was just that you had this amazing support network of of people who were trying also trying to do good through doing business, as opposed to when you got back to your kind of normal environment, everybody thought you were bonkers, basically. Nobody understood that business could be a force for good. And so what I learned from her was that A great mentor doesn't just kind of tell you it's going to be okay and, and, you know, give you a a little boost every now and then, but they actually think about how they can open up their network to you and they, they make introductions and they smooth your path. And so that's what I try and do when I mentor people is I actually only take on people who, either from the beauty world, which I still work in, or the food world, which I still work in, because otherwise my contacts aren't going to be relevant to them. So I've had people come up, you know, very nice people at speeches I've given and they've you know, said, will I mentor them? But they're working in banking. I, they know more about banking than I do.
0: You know? <laughs> uh, so, so I think that's key. So what would you say along your way has been the best advice that you've ever been, been given? Oh, my God, that's the hardest question I
1: think I've ever been asked. Um, oh my word, I'm not sure I can even crystallise it. I mean, it's just, you soak up so many things and it's not even just the advice that you're given, it's watching other people do things and learning from them and learning the body language, learning the language. And that's why I think it's been so hard for people during the last 18 months. I really feel for the legions of people and I've met quite a few of them who have started jobs without ever even meeting their boss or going into the office or doing any of that stuff because so much of it is the non-verbal as well as the actually being told things so I suppose funnily enough the best piece of advice is actually probably from Craig from, from my husband because it used to I used to get gnawed up over um competition you know, people who were copying us or uh, people who were trying to edge their way into our marketplace. And he said, look, imagine you're a jockey and every time you look back over your shoulder, you slow down. Actually, what you need to do is you need to have your eye on that finishing post and you just need to thunder ahead looking at that finishing post. And that way you'll stay ahead of the competition. And I see it a lot. I see people get really, really... Exercised over what other people are doing in their arena. And while you've got to keep your finger on the pulse of what's doing, it shouldn't divert you from your course.
0: Now, obviously, you are a huge pioneer in organic food. What would you say your biggest learning was from Green and Blacks that you've taken into your other businesses?
1: Well, the most important thing is just, we, said, we mentioned it at the very beginning, the quality. So when you believe in your product when you when it is as good as it possibly can be, then everything flows from there it makes it really easy to sell whether it's the end customer or in our case a supermarket buyer or selling story to a journalist or whatever and so that is why we managed to make the leap out of I mean that and twinned with kind of a really good design because Organic food until that point had been a bit earth shoes and lentils. Um, It had been a bit kind of oatmeal packaging and, you know, this palette of just, you know, beige and green and hazelnut. And what we did was we created a product that looked premium. I mean, it was premium, but it looked it too. And so it was that combination of something that was as good as or better than what's out there, better I think, but with that design flair, which made us enabled us to make that leap from the niche of of the eco world into the mainstream, and so that I think is um, I say that to anybody who's got any kind of project, which is whether it's organic, whether it you know is trying to be sustainable, whether it is a social enterprise, um, basically, people might buy your product once because they're intrigued or because, you know, it's got that feel good factor of you're helping someone or you're helping the environment or you're helping the planet. But if it isn't as good as or better than what they're already buying, they won't ever come back the second time. So we are on a bound, those of us who are trying to change the world through the products we create and the businesses we create to actually do it better than what's already out there
0: as one of the UK's leading businesswomen, like what would you say to anyone who's thinking of starting their own business or is at the start of their journey who may be listening to profoundly? Don't copy somebody else. You know, if you want to get PR for what you're doing, and I still think
1: PR, even in the age of social media, if you can get a media mention of what you're doing, it's incredibly powerful. It really is. It still registers on people's retinas in the way that nothing else does. Um, So, don't do a me too product there are still plenty of niches out there that need filling if and my starting point for all my businesses has been if I need something and I can't find it then chances are that lots of other people will feel the same way and I think that's a really good starting point point. and it doesn't have to be the very first in the world although that's always good but even the first in your area so some of my businesses so My second, I think it was second business, Judge's Bakery, which was a natural and organic uh, food store that we opened on our street. We took over an old um, kind of traditional family high street bakery where, you know, the bread wasn't great and there was nothing, you know, people went there because they needed to get a loaf of bread. They didn't go there as a, it wasn't a destination really. Um, and we transformed that into a kind of, you know, a real, really humming natural organic food store that sold meat and produce and deli stuff and wine and cheese and, and great bread. I mean, it was, it was incredibly hard work. But the reason I started that was because we couldn't get good food in our town at that point. And I figured if I was coming home to Hastings... From london with two great big whole food bags hanging off my arms the chances are that actually lots of other people wanted to buy good food too close to home so that was that was that was it again i opened a well-being center uh, two years later which is is doing very well now after the pandemic when it had to close and there was nowhere in our town with a beautiful setting where you could have yoga classes from great teachers and a Pilates one to one and treatments, and so it's got nine rooms and a Pilates studio and a yoga studio, so it's not the first one in the world, but it was the first one in our town, and so there's a virtue in being the first in your town
0: as well in your local I just want to touch upon sort of this national leadership week is in November, and I would love to know from you what you think the best qualities are that make a really great leader and a great entrepreneur? I think you, on one level, have to be a control freak because you've got to get the detail of your
1: business right, but you also have to be able to stand back and let people get on with things. And that comes down to finding people you can trust. And then, you know, through all my businesses, i had a lot of single mothers working for me over the years. And, you know, they had to go to school concerts and sports days and kids that got you know, sick and all of those things. And so I developed a style of basically setting a task and setting a deadline and saying, I'm a safety net. If you need me, if you you need to refer to me, I'm here to help you, but not breathing down anybody's neck, basically letting them do it themselves. And so I think that that's really, really important, you know, to be too much of a control freak where you're kind of leaping in every what everyone else is doing it's like no just trust people if you've got the right people trust them and they will they will never let you down and nobody ever has let me down in that kind of using that as a leadership kind of tactic I think I think you've got to you have to have a clear vision of where you're going and communicate that and you have to also have a cool head So basically what your team never want is to see their boss panicking over anything.
0: As a successful woman in business, what do you think we can do about gender equality on boards? Do you feel like positive discrimination is a way forward? Okay, so I'm going to tell you a funny story here. (laughs) A few,
1: well, quite a few years ago, probably 10 years ago now, I was invited to sit on on a panel which is discussing this exact subject and the subject of quotas on boards to which i was violently opposed when i walked into the room because no woman i know wanted to feel like she had got on the board to tick a box or to bring the numbers up because we want to feel we got there on merit however it was at the institute of economic affairs which uh, felt quite grown up for someone with 6 o levels none of which was maths um and my friend Catherine Mayer, who's now founder of the Women's Equality Party and I think was an editor at large at Time magazine at the time, happily came along on the night because I I don't think either of us could ever believe what unfolded, had unfolded if we hadn't seen it with our own eyes. And I was just thrilled she was a witness. So there's a panel. It includes Claire Girardo, who at the time was the head of the College of GPs. The moderator was Jeffrey Bloom. MEP, who was eventually fired for hitting a journalist with a newspaper, but was a UKIP Member of Parliament, or MEP. Anyway, as the room filled up, so the the idea, the, the premise put forward was that we should resist Brussels insisting that 40% of women on boards of public companies had to be women. And the idea was that women should be allowed to get there on their own right. So I was very much in keeping with this. And the, they got behind it because they what they said was they found it was another example of Brussels meddling in our way of life. But everyone from UKIP was filtering in and quite a lot of journalists. And I suddenly realised that actually... It's weirdly a UKIP event, which I was furious about afterwards because nobody had... Well, in fact, my person who booked me for it didn't even know. But it sort of degenerated into this discussion about women on boards and this idea that um, it was so sort of negative, all this negativity about women. And you realise that actually it was just a posture on their part. And at one point completely randomly the treasurer of UKIP stood up and expostulated well it's a well-known fact that women can't play bridge and the the head of the college of GPs leaps to her feet and goes I'll have you know my mother's the bridge champion of Malta and the whole thing just went completely it was insane and you realize that, that actually they'd been trying to look PC but the amount of Prejudice and discrimination in that room was absolutely extraordinary. And when it came to the end, and we were all asked to give our, you know, have we changed our position? I said, I have absolutely changed my position because while there are still men like this in charge in the world, in senior positions, then actually, yes, a quota is required to get women in position where they will then prove themselves. But I said, You lot are dinosaurs and you're going to
0: die. And when you do, you know, we will be running the world. (laughs) Go, Joe! I love that. But that's so shocking. But this is such an interesting one because I, you know, I really agree with you. It has to be on merit. But at the same time, I don't see how else we can level the playing field. I, I totally changed my opinion.
1: It was so clear that that discrimination is still in existence and okay, if it has to be a case of ticking boxes for now, then fine, because we put a woman in that role and she will prove herself. Can I ask when this was? It was about 10 years ago. So several of the dinosaurs have died since then, but it, it was extraordinary. And if Catherine hadn't been there as my witness, I, I don't know what, I'd have honestly thought, did I dream that? Because I had not come up against that kind of prejudice in my career as a, First of all, as a women's magazine editor, where it is an advantage to be a woman and then actually
0: not really in business either. But suddenly it was it was so toxic. And on equality and gender pay gaps, obviously equal pay days also in November. It's this month. And that's obviously the national campaign led by the Fawcett Society and marks a day where women effectively on average stop earning relative to men because of that gender pay gap how do you think we can help sort this gap
1: out i wish i had a magic wand because it is a thorny issue and i i do think i mean we all want it to happen immediately but i do have to remember that i think was it only in 1972 that women were able to start sitting on juries and things i mean it you know and it's a, it's only 100 years since we've had the vote so in, in the, i think we also while continuing to fight for equality we do have to slightly go well a lot has happened and it will happen but and I'd love to speed it up but I do think it does slightly require the death of the dinosaurs still for it to happen and then it will happen because you know the the sons of the women who read Cosmo when they were young have grown up absolutely believing that women should be paid equally. But there is still that kind of top tier at the top of business from which it trickles down that grew up when, I mean, they've probably still got wives who, work, who stay at home and plan dinner parties and, you know, play bridge. <laughs> 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 um, and so I genuinely think it will be a natural thing. And yes, I would love to speed it up. But short of, you know, eliminating all of them i'm not sure i'm not sure we can speed it up i wish we could
0: i just want to touch upon and i know that you're really passionate about ethical and environmental issues not just obviously the importance of organic food but also you know within business obviously this is very much the issue of the moment with kind of cop 26 happening recently what are your hopes for the conference and and the changes do you think that need to be made well, I hope that finally
1: it's on people's radar, and 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 what I really want people to understand is, is <laughs> and I think actually this is the message that's coming out of the COP26. I went to a Soil Association question time event about 15 years ago, and there was a wonderful Indian environmentalist sitting on the panel called Vandana Shiva, and one of the questions posed to her was, "Do you think it's too late to save the planet?" And she <laughs> very wisely just smiled and said, the planet will be fine without us. At which point this kind of penny, I could hear a large penny dropping for most of the audience. It's like, okay, this isn't about the planet. This is about the survival of the human race. And I think that people are scared to say that. And so we talk about saving the rainforest, or we talk about plastic in the ocean, or we talk about climate change. But what, I mean, there was a great meme that went around this week of a, dino, sorry, keep bringing up dinosaurs, but it said, we had an asteroid, what's your excuse? So basically it was saying, okay, the asteroids wiped out the dinosaurs, but you know, we haven't got an asteroid. We're doing this to ourselves. So I think a little bit of kind of uh, talking about the nitty gritty of what this actually means would be a lot more powerful than just uh, the pussyfooting around of, of, you know, and it, it's scary. It's, it's, people don't want to confront
0: scary stuff, but I think we have to now. What would you like to see businesses do to be more sustainable and to play that part? Well, I mean, I think the pandemic did a huge amount
1: stopping business travel, which is a, obviously a, a massive thing. I think we all have to limit our travel. Personally, you know, I used to go off for nice weekends in Europe and things. But the pandemic made us have nice weekends on the train in England and, and Wales and Scotland. And they were just as nice. All you, all you really need with a holiday is a change of scene, not necessarily a complete uh, switch of country. So I think there's that. I think, I mean, there is more going on, funnily enough, than people talk about. Because, and I think this is a, a kind of rule that applies to individuals as well. So the perfect is the enemy of the good. So I often work with businesses where actually they're doing quite a lot from an environmental or a social point of view. But they don't talk about it very much because they're worried somebody's going to go, yeah, but you're still doing that. You're still doing X, Y, and Z. And it's actually a journey of a thousand miles that begins with a single step and then another step and then another step. But because they're not perfect yet, they don't want to talk about what they are doing. And I would say the same to individuals. It can feel incredibly overwhelming. And you think, oh, I can't become completely environmentally sustainable it's all about little steps that all add up, rather than feeling like you've got to be perfect for the whole thing. Nobody's perfect. but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't make changes and do things differently. And my biggest thing is is waste of resources, and and that's why I think that using stuff up and not constantly buying new. Um, I mean, I think the whole fashion industry has a real—it's a conundrum for industry generally, which is that they're trying to create more sustainable versions of fashion or beauty or whatever. But actually, the really sustainable thing is to wear your old clothes and and not buy new. Yeah, not buy new, and it's to use up your beauty products rather than buying a greener, cleaner version of them, etc. And so. Uh, Unfortunately, the entire global economy is kind of based on this idea of constant renewal and, and, and upgrading of stuff, whether it is cars or um, houses or curtains or kitchens or whatever. And actually, we somehow have to navigate away through making use of what we already have.
0: Yeah, I think you're totally right. But it's hard to implement on a very consumer focused world.
1: It's very hard. It's very hard. But for example, I needed um, to kit out a kitchen recently. And, you know, I could have gone to Neptune or Devolo, whatever they're called. Um, And I went on Facebook Marketplace. And for £995, I got an entire new old, like 15 years, solid wood kitchen with a smeg cooker with a smeg hood, with a microwave, with a sink. And and I'm reusing it.
0: Now, Joe, we mentioned your wellbeing centre in Hastings, the Wellington Centre. I want to know what wellbeing means to you, because obviously our pillars at Femme Foundry are physical health, mental health, spiritual health and financial health. So I'd love to know what wellbeing means to you. It means, it, it is
1: a mental and physical balance, basically, for me. and. I know that I have to invest some time every day in trying to achieve that, whether it is that, you know, I did a 15-minute walking meditation this morning, which meant that I could be outdoors and get some of my 10,000 steps a day, um, as well as, uh, you know, clearing my mind for a presentation that I had to make this morning. Um, I religiously take my supplements, especially over the last 18 months, because, you know, I want to stay as well as possible um i do yoga uh, at least once a week and you know people sometimes say well, have you got time to do it but actually weirdly when i do do it it's like it takes an hour but it gives me 2 hours back somehow because i I've, I've got clarity of thought i've got i'm feeling calm you know i've, I've stretched all my muscles et cetera. so but i think it's something that has to become habitual so I'm a great one for actually um, having kind of well-being rituals, whether it is the, you know, the, the the oils that I rub on my palms in the morning to wake me up or the same ones that I, you know, the ones I spritz on my pillow to go to bed. And, and I really like uh, making it as much a part of my day as brushing my teeth, basically, or taking my makeup off. And I think, is it how many days is it you have to do something before it becomes a habit but I think we need to get in the habit of doing those things and it's the regularity of them that makes the difference and of course you can have days when you you know fall off the meditation wagon or whatever but if you can be doing it as regularly as possible then it just gives you this amazing kind of foundation um and when your day gets difficult
0: you've got some some water in your well you've got you've got something to draw on and I think you know that's one thing from the pandemic is you know being forced to slow down and really look at our like hectic busy lifestyles and you know think thinking about how we look after ourselves how we get the best from ourselves which is also a lot of what Femme Foundry is about. And I know you've written a lot on about beauty, both as a journalist, your uh, Beauty Bible series, and you're also one of the founders of the Perfume Society. And I know we're both huge fans of fragrance. So I just want to touch on this really quickly. Um, why did you start the Perfume Society?
1: I started the Perfume Society because I felt that there was no kind of hub for people who love perfume that brought together, uh, that offered events and you know we We have a magazine and uh, we do discovery boxes where you can smell before you buy. Um, And there was nothing that kind of brought all those things together. And I felt that perfume was becoming like wine. People wanted to know more about it. And the more you know, the more you get out of it, the more pleasure you, you experience. And, you know, you learn about the perfumers, you learn about ingredients and things and and actually i mean i've always been if somebody said to me you know they pointed out that what all my businesses had in common was they have something to do with the senses
0: and also that kind of relationship that we have about with scent and what it evokes uh what it transcends the way it makes us feel what advice do you think we can we can give to sort of reconnect with that side of their senses i mean i think
1: it's literally taking time to stop and smell the roses or the sandalwood or whatever. And and when you put your perfume on, not have it as just kind of like putting on your knickers, but actually something that you tune into and and try and appreciate more. I realised walking on a train the other day that one of the things I'd really, really missed in lockdown was walking down the corridor of a train and getting random wafts of other people's perfume. such a funny point. That's just so, that's so true. <laughs> and I just this big beam came on my face. And it's like, oh, wow, I really love this. You know, it's about stimulation. You know, we miss that stimulation. We know we did during lockdown. Our, our taste buds kind of died and all our senses were kind of dialed down, I think.
0: I just want to finish with our quick fire round. Uh, so as I mentioned, our pillars are mental health, physical health, financial health and spiritual health. What what works for you and what's your best advice on looking after our mental health? Mental health is meditation, calm.com app every day
1: religiously lots of different meditative options and a little breathe button that kind of breathes in and out if you need to calm yourself down just you follow the the bubble and it and it goes in and out and before you know it your blood pressure has gone down but that for me is the kind of number one
0: amazing and what about your physical health how do you look after that what works for you Ten thousand steps a day, or I think my average. I'm just going to
1: look it up. I think the annual daily average is running at about ten thousand three hundred and forty-six. That's amazing a day, and that is. I really like it when I can get use it to get from A to B. But I will make myself go on walks at home, and I know that if I'm walking, my whole body works better, my digestion works better, my head is clearer, and I can eat. You know reasonably without ever having to watch what what I
0: eat and then finally spiritual health do you, are you in touch with your spiritual self are you a spiritual person
1: I mean I think my spiritual self is probably to do with kindness and I'm, I'm not a religious person but I think that that there is a kind of spirituality to kindness and I think that's what at the core of of organized religion at its best it's about kindness it's about being open to other people about about not being judgmental you know so i think trying to be kind is is a spiritual act on my part i mean i like to think i'm naturally kind but consciously kind is uh, is something but i mean i don't i don't practice any kind of religion per se but I, yeah there's lots of ways to be spiritual
0: brilliant well Joe thank you so much for coming on for profoundly and for taking the time to offer your pearls of wisdom with us you can of course connect with Joe in the fem foundry app and it's been a real pleasure to chat to you I massively appreciate all of your incredible advice uh, I think this is going to be one of my favorite episodes of serious inspiration
1: it's so nice to see you I think one of the great things about women is paying it forward if you've had a reasonable amount of success, every woman I know wants to actually give back and pay it forward and
0: make the path
1: that little bit clearer and easier for other women.
0: And it's all about paying it forward here for us at Fem Foundry as well. A real inspiration there, Jo Fairley on Profoundly. Now, this week, we hear from the Naked Professor encouraging us to maintain our physical health. I would say I go back to that, that philosophy that I said um, don't sacrifice what you want most for what you want now the amount of times I've woken up and thought I don't want to go to
1: the gym and sometimes I didn't go to the gym and an hour later I'm still lying in bed feeling a bit average about myself the times that I've got up and I've done it because it's what I know inside of me serves me that, that hour after I'm walking out of the gym ready to take on the world so it's like we live in a world of instant gratification physical exercise doesn't always feel great until you've
0: done it and of course after it we feel amazing thanks for that ben that's it from me this week a huge thanks to joe Fairley. you can connect with her on the Fem foundry app do give us a rate and a subscribe if you can on this podcast and a follow at pips underscore taylor at Fem foundry app on instagram i'll be back next week have a good one